Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Good morning. Uh, He is risen. And we can also say he has risen. He has risen indeed. And I will assure you those are both, again, those are theologically, historically, existentially, and as my wife told me, grammatically correct. (laughs) So, uh, I am glad you're here. Uh, And uh, it is a beautiful Easter Sunday. Um, Every week when we are together, oh, sorry, kids, you're going to stay in here today. All right? But it's okay. I promise. I promise it's okay. None of this will hurt you. Um, and uh, I'll actually encourage you to, uh, to, pay, to hang in there if you can and listen uh, if you can. Uh, if you are coloring or something, that's totally fine. If you see your parents on their phone, however, use that sharp edge bone that you have in the elbow and give them a loving tap on the ribs. All right? Every week uh, at the end of our services, uh, since, uh, since everything shut down for COVID, every week uh, at the end of our services, we recite the Apostles' Creed together as a church. And this is, this is a creed that unites us throughout the world and throughout history as, as a common, uh, we actually went through this a couple years ago, it's like a suitcase of our beliefs to, that we can take with us and then open up and unpack. That's what it's designed for. Um, And we conclude that creed every week that we read, and we say this, I believe, and the kids I'm sure know this because they all have it memorized, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, amen. Look at that. Right on it. All right? That's what we finished with. A couple weeks ago uh, in our world, after another brutal day of the news cycle of gun violence in our nation, This is the only thing that I could think of. This is the only hopeful thing uh, that I could think of. Efforts and cliches and pride and outrage and self-righteousness just seemed weary and worn and tired. And hope can seem far away, uh, especially in in our world that gets magnified through a computer screen and simultaneously, simultaneously through complete disconnection with other humans Uh, It just seems weary. And so this is the line that came to mind. And I don't know if it added anything to the conversation, but I found it the only thing that I could cling to that was hopeful. And I thought maybe this would be something to put out there that other people could cling to as hopeful, maybe even reveal to some others hope. And so I posted this on social media. And an old friend of mine from high school, uh, we've connected a few times since high school, but he uh, replied on this, Uh, and asked the question. He didn't want to be offensive or aggressive, and he said he was wondering if he was opening a can of worms. And he asked, why do you believe this? Let me tell you something. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian culture guy. I'm not a, I'm not like a quick, easy, let me give you, let me give you the quick, easy path to, uh, to how to get saved guy. But you ask me about the resurrection of Jesus, 
and I will gladly open that can of worms as long as I can talk. I will open that can of worms gladly, joyfully. So today, what I want to do is essentially I want to reflect on why I believe of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. What does that mean about our bodies? What does that mean about today? And I don't want to make this about me. This is not, this is not about me, but sometimes, especially refuge folk, sometimes what you need to hear from your preacher, sometimes you need to hear the guy that stands up here and preaches at you every week, and you may wonder, does he really believe the things he says? And sometimes you need to hear that I actually believe this. I actually hold to this. Um, and uh, so we're going we're gonna to engage this passage from 1 Corinthians. Um, but this morning, what I want to do is I don't want to necessarily tell you what you should believe as much as I want to convey to you that I utterly and wholeheartedly am convinced. And my hope is that you feel invited to explore this if you haven't. I hope you feel invited maybe to be encouraged in your life, in your faith. Uh, and perhaps this is helpful to solidify some areas of doubt, to give you some grace that it's okay to wrestle with doubt, uh, and also to grow an understanding about thinking deeply about what we hold to. If you're a follower of Jesus, what do we hold to? So why do I believe in the resurrection, res resurrection of the body? Well, first and foremost, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus of Nazareth existed in time and history. He was written about. It's been documented. Uh, multiple sources. He made significant claims about being able to forgive sins, something only God could do, about being the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, about ushering in the kingdom of God, about being the way, the truth, and the life, about being the son of man, the temple not built by man's hands. He was not simply a good teacher. Good teachers don't get killed. The primary accusation against Jesus in his final trial was blasphemy, that he claimed to be God. But that's not unique. That's not unique. There were a ton of people throughout history who claimed to be God. There were numerous claims throughout Jewish, Jewish history of people claiming to be the Messiah. And we don't bet in church. Uh, and some of you are way smarter than I am, so I wouldn't make this bet anyway if we did bet in church. But since we don't, but there's a very strong chance that none of us could name any other of the ancient people who claimed to be messiahs or claimed to be God. Right? I mean, David Koresh. I remember when I was a youth minister, I was like, David Koresh. And everybody in my youth group was like, who's that? <laughs> and now, you're, even now, you're probably like, who? Um, and it, or you may have seen the Netflix special. Um, there's a strong chance that none of us know who they are. Why? Because when they die, their names die. Their movements die. The memories die. There's no reason why you would ever know who Jesus was unless he substantiated his claims. Tim Keller uh, tells it like this. If you could put together a list of the most influential people in history, Jesus if you put together a top 10 list and Jesus did not make the top 10, you, you have an agenda. You have an agenda, period. Surely, surely Jesus, for any serious historian, surely Jesus makes the top 10 of every list of the most influential people in history. Probably the top five, 
probably even the top three, if not the single most influential person in all of history. So if you take that list and then you put together another list of people who claim to be God, you could fill that list. And chances are good we would not know the names of many of those people. We may have heard about them from time to time. But there's probably only one place where those two lists would intersect. And that would be the person of Jesus. The only reason we know anything about Jesus and his life is if he actually did anything to substantiate the claims that he made that he was God. And I would submit that rising again from the grave actually does substantiate the claims that you would make to be God. In this letter to uh, the church in Corinth, Paul encourages uh, followers of Jesus to remember that their hope is in Christ's life and in his death and in his resurrection. He reassures their faith and reminds them that it wasn't just a rumor that Jesus rose from the grave. There were eyewitnesses. Jesus appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the rest of the disciples. Then he appeared to 500 people, most of whom were still alive. Go ask them yourselves. But there's something off in Paul's testimony of the Corinthian church. Anybody know what it is? Jesus did not first appear to Peter, did he? Who did Jesus first appear to? Mary, the women at the tomb. Paul knows better, right? Now, you may go, see, there you go, the Bible's false, we can can write it off right there. No, here's the deal. Women's testimony was not admissible in court. So the fact that all of the gospel accounts actually say that the women were the first ones at the tomb was remarkable and would have been foolish unless it was accurate, historically. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he's not, Paul, we we love to pin some things on Paul that are probably not fair. Paul's not a misogynist. Paul's not trying to erase women or cancel them. Paul is basically sharing the important information at that time. So at Corinth, he writes out the women at the tomb because that, that he would just go right to the verifiable eyewitnesses. Peter, then the apostles, and then 500 people. Um, none of this would make sense if the resurrection didn't happen. And if you go, well, the church went back and edited that. Well, that was a pretty big oversight by the church. Should have edited out the women from the gospel account or had Paul write something different, right? The only reason this makes sense is if it happened. There are well-thought-through verifications that have been laid out plenty of times, but I always find it encouraging to be reminded of this, especially on days when I struggle with doubt or fear. Paul then talks about after appearing to Peter, he appears to the, uh, to the other disciples in the 500. There's various suggestions about how this may have taken place. Maybe the disciples stole the body and they were trying to uh, trying to continue to do that. First of all, Roman soldiers. If you've ever read the list of these disciples and think somehow that they overtook Roman soldiers, that's miraculous. Let me also tell you this. Whether you believe that Jesus rose from the grave or not, you believe in miraculous, hard-to-explain things. And if you say, well, the disciples stole them away, that's a miraculous, hard-to-believe thing that you have to now explain. And then the fact that they died for that lie, you also have to explain that. That's a miraculous, hard thing to explain. And you can say, well, Jesus didn't exist in history. That's going to be a really hard thing to explain. You just have to want to not believe it. All of these things are very well uh, verified. Um, 
And then the idea that the disciples would give up their lives, claiming that Jesus was raised from the dead if it wasn't true. It makes no sense. And then when we see the recording of the disciples and what they did after Jesus died, they did exactly what we thought, what we would think people would do when the leader of your rebellion or your movement dies and the government is against you. They hid. They hid in fear. They weren't out praising and raising their hands and being bold. They were in the upper room that Jesus had to walk through locked doors to get into. That's a whole nother. We'll, maybe we'll look at that next week. They acted how we think they would act. And even after Jesus appeared to them, they were still scared and they still hid. You know why? Because that's not normal. They did not expect that. His disciples thought it was over. They couldn't believe that this was the man that they thought was sent by God. He was performing miracles. He was healing people. They didn't think this is how it would end. There's so much evidence from history. There's eyewitnesses, outside sources. The, the claims that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead are, are if you're going to believe anything in history, we have, to, we have to hold this up. Historically. Not just theologically, but historically. And by the way, to say that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead is actually redundant. That's what resurrection means, physical. Some people have suggested it's not Jesus was physically resurrected, it was the spirit of Jesus. And it was the spirit of Jesus that the disciples continued to live out and the spirit of Jesus to give compassion and love and act in this way. It wasn't physically resurrected, it was, it was the spirit of Jesus. Um, and uh, they had terms, Jewish God-fearers in that day had terms for the spirit of, and they had terms for resurrection. If my grandpa, I've used this example before. I love my grandpa dearly. He died 14 years ago on New Year's Eve. And if somebody were to say to me, your grandpa is with you, I would, I would be humbled by that. Um, I thought my grandpa was a tremendous man. And if somebody looked at me and saw glimpses and, and of my grandpa uh, in me, I would feel very humbled and honored, unless it was church softball, and then I would be embarrassed and may deny that I knew him, but also internally a little proud. My grandpa, at 75 years old, got kicked out of a church softball game as a fan. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you... I, and you think my grandma may have been like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I know those old days, she stood by her man. And I, I don't remember if she got kicked out too, but like she would have been right there. She supported him fully. If it was a bad call, it was a bad call. <laughs> now, if you were to say, so we would all know what you're saying. Your grandpa's with you. We would all be like, yeah, that's a warm feeling, right? But if you were to say your grandpa is with you, and then he walked through that back door and came up and stood next to me. We would probably freak out a little bit. I would. That's a totally different meaning. The Jewish people had words for spirit, and they had words for resurrection, and they knew what words they meant, and they used them. And they said, resurrection. And because I believe that Jesus was resurrected from the grave, I believe that the resurrection, I believe what he said, the resurrection is the future hope for those who trust in him. Not just for good moral people, 
not even for good religious people, not for those who have it all together, for those who are trying to be our own hero, our own rescuer, but for those who know that our only hope is in Christ, our future is resurrection. Our future is not death. Our future is beyond death. And Paul, bless his heart, Paul's going to be honest with us here. He's going to tell the, the Corinthian church, if it's not true, we are wasting our time. If it's not true, we're wasting our time. You're wasting an hour and a half of your <laughs> life this morning inside this really nice warehouse. It's getting a little warm in this really nice warehouse. I may have to. Somebody else messing with this? I have control. All right. Everybody else? Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. If, if we don't believe this, if we don't believe this, uh, it, or if you're here, I'm, I'd say go ahead and take off now. Don't, I mean... Don't, but you could, right? Beat the crowds to the Easter brunch, get in on that omelet station, grab a couple glasses of champagne and live your best life, right? This is a waste of time. Well, I, I know, I know, I know. You gotta let me get to the good part. Where's your, where's your dad? But if we're here and we're committed to this, all right, hope, here comes the good part. Are you listening? Okay. If we're committed to this, then here's what that means. The ultimate end and purpose of our lives is not personal happiness. It's not living our best life. It's not sucking the marrow out of life or carpe diem. It's not getting all that we can now because you only live once. This has never, ever, ever, ever been part of the Christian witness or teaching. To follow Jesus is to actually give up our lives because this isn't the end. It's to hope beyond this world. And if we're wrong, we're to be pitied above everyone. And listen to me. Don't think I don't weigh this often. Don't think that doesn't hit on me like often. I think about and examine this stuff a lot. So I'm not up here naive. The reality is this, I would love for you this morning, if, it's, if this is not you, I would love for you to embrace Jesus or to embrace him all the more, to hold fast to the resurrection and trust him with your life and let him mess with your stuff and re reorient your priorities and convictions and, and really kind of help you see what it's like to really love your enemies and be transformed. I would love for you to believe this and embrace that. That said, what I want to tell you is this, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth in time and history was unjustly killed and rose from the grave. And when I struggle, this is what I come back to. God was gracious enough to accomplish this in time and history. He doesn't say, just close your eyes and believe. It's hard, but just close your eyes and believe. He does this with eyewitnesses. He does this before man. He does this in time and history. And we can believe him. And it's a pretty lock-solid history. To not believe this, it, it requires an agenda to not believe it. Now, that said, faith is a little more than just believing that it happened. 
following Jesus is a little more than just acknowledging the historical relevance. It's when our lives and our desires and our efforts and our productivity and our priorities, when they kind of get messed up by this. They get resituated and reorganized. So what does it mean for today? What does the resurrection mean for us right now? Uh, it means we give our lives to this. That believing to hope in the resurrection is believing that this hope will not be put to shame. That what we do actually matters. N.T. Wright uh, puts it in an amazing way, this way. I think we have the quote. He says this, The point of the resurrection is that this present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. That what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, uh, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needs of the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, somehow, some way, this will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, till the day we leave it all behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. We are living in anticipation of what will be, our king's return. So we give ourselves to Jesus and to one another, and then together we love and serve the world around us. And this messes, up, messes us up because we're taught both religiously and irreligiously that this world doesn't matter. On one just suck the marrow out of life and live your best life now and then who cares. On the other side, it's this world's going to burn and one day we'll fly away. And neither one of those things are resurrection. Resurrection is that we are actually preparing this world through our love and labor for her coming king. That we are giving ourselves up in this world to love as Jesus has loved us. Now, this can be wounding. This can be hurtful. A lot of times we make it sound like loving other people is like lollipops and peeps, and peeps are disgusting. It's most, one of the most divisive things I've said, and I will stand by it. Give me the chocolate marshmallow-filled nasty eggs in the egg carton every day. All right. All right, everybody over that? <laughs> Loving people is hard. If we say our lives are to look like Jesus, have you read about his life? His life was not lollipops. It was hard. To love other people was hard. His life was marked with deep love, and it was painful. Even as Leonard Cohen puts it, love is not a victory march. It's a cold, and it's a broken hallelujah. And yet... The hope of the resurrection steadies and fuels and reminds us there is something more. This is not the end. And so we are freed. We are able to love people we disagree with. We're able to love people that are difficult. We're able even to love people that are against us and want the hope of the resurrection for them. Shoot, we are actually able to love ourselves and want and hope for the resurrection even for ourselves because sometimes we can be the hardest person to love. And the incarnation tells us that we can't just love other people by preaching at them of what they're supposed to do. Jesus didn't come down and just 
preach at people and say, hey guys, try to get it all together and then float back up every night. We forgive. It, it, it's not preaching at them. It means walking with them. We forgive because we've experienced forgiveness and are experiencing forgiveness. I'm not saying there's no boundaries, but I'm saying we're set free to have to seek our own vengeance. We can trust God with that. We're set free from mandating that everyone has to believe like we do and act like we do. We're free to give of our goods and of our lives for the sake of others because all that we have and all that we are are not our own. God's patient. Praise God. And this idea of the resurrection continues to mess with us. This life is not it. I'm not chasing after everything right now. Because we are being transformed from death into life. We're being made new, crafted and shaped and refined to inherit the imperishable, to inherit God's kingdom. And I believe that the work of the resurrection is certain as Jesus works in us and on us. But if we're honest, if, you're, if we're honest here, and, and maybe this is a good time for, sometimes it feels like it takes forever. Am I alone in that? Okay. I love how John Newton puts it. He says this, the hope of the resurrection is that we're not what we should be and we're not what we will be. But by God's grace, we're not what we once were. Newton was a sailor, and then he actually was sold into slavery, and then he became a slave trader, captain the slave ships. And then he met Jesus, and the resurrection transformed him so deeply that he left the lucrative slave trade business and then became a priest and worked hard in Parliament to have England totally abolish the slave trade, to commit econocide. He was appointed as a priest in a small town market of Olney. And in 1767, a young poet and hymn writer by the name of William Cooper moved to town and began going to Newton's church. William Cooper was a faithful follower of Jesus. He was a brilliant poet and hymn writer, but he also struggled greatly with depression. So much so that he was uh, hospitalized more than one time. And Newton would come and would sit by his friend and sit with his friend and just sit in the silence. But even still, Cooper struggled greatly, even through their deep friendship. And what was at odds within William Cooper was how could he be a follower of Jesus and still struggle with depression? How could he believe these things and still have such deep anxiety and depression? To the point where he wondered, could I really actually be a Christian? Could I really be saved if I struggle this much? John Newton wrote a poem for his friend to encourage him from the words of Jesus and that encourages us still to this day. In the last verse of the hymn, Pensive Doubting Fearful Heart, uh, he wrote to his friend William Cooper. And I'm just going to tell you right now, uh, I'm not able to get through this without weeping, so bear with me. But this is the hope of the resurrection. Though afflicted, tempest-tossed, Comfortless a while thou art. Do not think thou canst be lost. Thou art graven on my heart. All thy wastes I will repair. Thou shalt be rebuilt anew. And in thee it shall appear what a God of love 
can do. That's the hope of the resurrection. Not you getting all your stuff together. Not you being better than other people. Not you being the pillar moral example to the community. It's the hope of what a God of love can do. Several years ago, I was meeting, uh, meeting with a friend, and this was during a particularly dark struggle. Uh, I've told this before from time to time. Um, depression and anxiety have been pretty constant companions uh, in my life for at least the last 20 years or so. And then planting a church and pastoring during some of the most divisive, ridiculous, hostile, crazy time periods in American history doesn't necessarily help that. And so I was out with a friend, uh, a pastor friend, and we were talking and he was trying to encourage me. And this is, this is the conclusion that I came to. <laughs> I said, listen, there are pastors who are a lot holier than I am, who have it together a lot better than I do. They're better leaders, better preachers, better communicators, better prayers and evangelists. And on down the line, and there's so many days where I feel like an imposter and I feel completely incompetent. But this, I will put up against anybody. Nobody longs to be made new as much as I do. I can't wait. I can't wait. And I know it's happening already, and I cling to that and press in as much as I can, but I also want to tell you, one day, I long for this. No more fear, no more insecurity, no more anxiety or anger, wondering if I should have said this or shouldn't have said this. No more social media. No more trying to impress people or feeling like I have to fix other people or feeling like I have to fix myself. No more mental illness. No more addiction. No more spinal issues. No more memory loss, no more wheelchairs or canes, no more misogyny, no more racism, no more isms, no more hatred. We will be whole. We will be new. We will be in the presence of Jesus, our good and faithful King, who will have made all things new. Let's pray. Jesus, our hope is not that one day we'll fly away. Our hope is that you are making all things new. Jesus, our hope is not that we would get it all together in this life. We want to follow you and be faithful in that. But we don't do that and then crush ourselves with shame and guilt to try to be better. And Jesus, help us please if we have no hope and we think just life is a vapor and you're born, blah, 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 you die. There is life beyond this life. Thank you for today when we celebrate that. This is glorious. You didn't just tell us to, to try and imagine it. You actually came here in front of our very eyes with eyewitnesses and demonstrated what one day will be. Death does not have the last word. I pray today we would be humbled 
and in awe and grateful that the resurrection would, start, would, would bring new life and we would see it and experience it as it grows in us. But we would also walk in a confidence that even on the days that it doesn't feel full, that we know one day it will be. The night does not win. May we celebrate well the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.